Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Hello out there in in podcast land, wherever you might be listening to this. Uh, I'm recording this as I normally do in a small kind of room down the end of our home in West Auckland. Uh, It's about 11 o'clock at night and for some reason ridiculously hot for this time of the evening. Uh, Our three and a half week old baby is sleeping at the other end of the house, which, well, when I say the other end of the house, this is a very small house, so it's literally about eight paces from where I'm sitting, although it is through a couple of doors, so hopefully that's going to see us uh, right. I did actually go to record this podcast a couple of times today during the day, which would seem like a more civilised time to record this than what I'm doing now. Uh, But the first time I was just putting our little mate Rufus down for a sleep, and just as I was about to put him down, he managed to power chuck all over me, uh, himself, our bed, his bed, everybody's clothes. Uh, It was a a dynamic and powerful time, we could say that, Uh, but it did slow me down somewhat. Uh, And then once I'd sorted all of that out... uh, (laughs) And I was about ready. Then our neighbour decided it'd be an excellent time to just start some construction work next door, which was greatly appreciated. Uh, and so <laughs> there have been power tools and crashing and banging and all, and, and all sorts of things going on next door, uh, which is not too far from uh, the window into this room. And so it's not been uh, it's not a particularly well sound insulated room. You might have picked up uh, on previous episodes the uh, sounds of dogs and birds and all sorts of things in the background that are just outside in our neighbourhood. So I guess this is the joys of recording in uh, suburbia. But anyway, here we are. Rufus is sleeping. I think construction has stopped. I hope it has by this time of night. Uh, so we're going to give this a go. So let's uh, let's give it a crack. If you've been listening along to the podcast up until now, you'll know, roughly speaking, that the last few episodes we've been talking about the way we think about God and God-related ideas uh, and the fact that this matters so profoundly for us because how we think about God or if you like, the, some of you might prefer to, to phrase that as the way we think about what lies at the heart of fundamental reality itself. This shapes so much of how we live in the world, how we see ourselves, how we interact with others, the ethics that we adopt and employ and so on. And over the past three episodes in particular, we've been looking at violence in the Christian Bible. And we've not just been doing that because it's controversial or dramatic or whatever, Uh, But because if we believe God is implicated in and incapable of real violence against people, whether it be to smite them or to wipe them out, to eliminate large swathes of people, including men, women, and children, uh, then even if you think Jesus came to make everything better for us as a Christian, you've got a God behind the scenes who could be conceived of as a monster from a certain point of view. And if people think, well, that's, that's okay because God's allowed to be a monster because God is God and I'm not and God knows better than I do... Well, I don't think that's okay. I I don't want to hold whatever I think about God to a lower ethical standard than I would hold somebody else. So, yes, that's what we've been talking about. And if you haven't listened to those episodes, you might want to, after you finish this one, you might want to go back and have a listen if you like. Because uh, my suggestion is really that the trajectory of the story and the sacred text of the Christian tradition in the Bible is ultimately to undo violent ways of seeing God and ourselves and instead invite us and even confront us sometimes when we need it with a different way of being in the world, one that can resist that age-old temptation to give in to our fears of one another, our fears of difference, our fears of God, our fears really of our own lack, and instead to live in a way that embraces the other, loves our enemies, and uh, experiences transformation. Which brings us to today's episode, which is the first in another little three-part series we're doing here 
Uh, and so here we're exploring the traditional Christian idea of hell. Yes, cue evil music, maybe. I don't know. I don't have any evil music uh, on file. Um, perhaps I should have thought of that beforehand. But uh, if our ideas about God are supposedly centered around notions of goodness and reconciliation and love for the other, if the Christian narrative is about undoing these violent views of God and one another and offering us an alternative, as I've been suggesting, then isn't this at odds ultimately with the idea of a God who eternally uh, sends people to some kind of conscious torment forever for not being in the right religious club, for not uh, participating in Christian Christianity, uh, isn't this the ultimate act of violence? Uh, so even if we've managed to say, oh, well, look, yeah, it wasn't really uh, God being the violent one back in the day, if we still hold to this idea, then uh, isn't this really still uh, something we have to wrestle with? So what do we do with ideas of judgment and hell and love and reconciliation? And how does all this come together uh, with justice and with notions of life beyond death? And what can we even say about that anyway? And then what do we do with the Jesus figure who uh, in our New Testaments, if you ever read those, uh, seems to talk about this word that we see on the page, hell, quite regularly. So what is going on here? So we're going to tackle this in three parts, as I said. In today's episode, I'm going to look at the language that's used for hell in the biblical text and what I think is going on there. Uh, in the next episode, we're going to focus more in on the various approaches to life after death in the Christian tradition uh, and my suggestions for some ways to think about this and what some of the implications of that are and why it matters. And then in the third episode, we're going to look at how does all of this conversation uh, and even the way we think about some of this language for hell and other things, how does that shape our ongoing life, our faith, our spirituality, our sense of self, our identity, uh, our relationship to our idea of God, to God? Um, what's how, what is, how does that play out? And so, um, so that's where we're going over the next three episodes. And uh, this is episode 10 of In the Shift. Let's get into it. So I've called this episode, What the Hell? Uh, and in many ways, hell is still a controversial subject. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I think many people look at the Christian religion and think, this must be nonsense, or I must reject this. Surely God can't condemn the majority of the human race to some kind of everlasting, eternal torment. Even for the quite bad people among us, the punishment kind of seems like overkill in, in many respects. It doesn't feel like it fits the crime an eternity of conscious suffering is a really, really long, long time to be punished for something, even for the worst among us. Um, and so a lot of people are like, hey, I've got, I want nothing to do with that. And then there are a whole lot of people within particular and a lot of the strains of, of Christianity who say, well, this is the big idea. This is one of the big ideas about why Christianity even matters. Uh, this was certainly the case for me growing up. I grew up with the idea of hell as a big shaping idea of my life. I, I mean, I was the kid you know, who would go to school when I was maybe eight, nine years old, and I would take these little gospel tracts, you know, with um, the story of Christianity just summarized on them in four nice points uh, with a prayer to pray in the back so that people could convert to Christianity and so be saved. And I was trying to give these out to my friends. You know, I'm eight years old, but I've got these friends that I'm making at school and I don't want them to go to hell when they die. And so I'm desperately trying to save them from this. I took this very seriously, you know, and in a sense, as I should, uh, like almost more concerning 
than um, than me doing that as an eight-year-old trying to rescue everybody from hell at primary school are all the people who actually genuinely believe in hell and don't do that. Like, is that more concerning? I don't know. You know, both perhaps both have got problems. Uh, anyway, I, that's what I was trying to do. And then I remember maybe when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I had this profound insight because, you know, I, I used to hear people saying, well, if God was a God of love, how could God send people to hell forever? And I was like, wait a second, I've got it. If God wasn't a God of love, we'd all be in hell already because that's what we fundamentally deserve. And so I told my mum this idea and she thought it was great, you know. Um, I thought it was brilliant. But now that I think about it and reflect on that, that's a pretty weighty thing to be pondering when you're 11 or 12 years old, right? Essentially, I was my reflection was I deserve hell and I should be there already. But because God loves me, I'm not there already and I've got a chance to get out. Um, that's some big stuff to be sitting with as a kid. And in many ways, it shaped a lot of my interactions, a lot of my um, spirituality. You know, there were many good aspects to my faith and my spirituality and my upbringing, but there was also a lot of underlying anxiety and fear that's uh, undoubtedly shaped by some of these kinds of ideas. And so as time's gone by, I've been, I've, as many people are, I think, tempted to rethink some of this and to at least re-examine it and say, there's some really big questions that have to be asked about the notion that God is a God of love, but God's own justice rules require people to be tormented forever if you don't respond to this love. You know, it's kind of like somebody saying, I love you and I want you to love me back of your own free choice. Uh, it's totally your choice, but I'd love for you to love me back. But if you don't love me back, you're going to go to hell forever. So is that a free choice? Uh, and at least in this kind of overgeneralized, probably slightly unfair, but whatever, version of the story, it really does sound like an abuser rather than the God of loving kindness and forgiveness that we see in the story of Jesus and that I've been trying to talk to you all about for the last little while. Uh, you know, if I had a friend who did that, I would, report him. But if that's not a good idea, then what's the alternative? Does it mean it doesn't matter what we do? We can behave, behave however, however we like because there are no consequences. There are no consequences for the radical terrorist who kills a whole lot of innocent people or the violent manipulative husband or the maniacal dictator. I mean, does Hitler get a free pass from all that he did? Uh, so... How do we negotiate all of this? What do we do with it? That's kind of what I'm wanting to explore over these three episodes and see if we can find some way forward. So to start off with, I want to think a little bit more about the way that the Christian message has been commonly understood in recent times, uh, including my seven or eight-year-old self. And this is largely Christian faith as an escape plan of sorts. You know, the overarching idea is ultimately we're going to get out of here, but we'll stick around so that we can take as many people with us as we can to the good place and try and rescue as many people as possible from the bad place. Uh, and this attitude has fostered a lot of fervent evangelism activity in the church, right? Trying to go out making converts. Uh, but also alongside that, a real common disregard often for our life here and now in certain versions of this at least. Uh, but especially for the earth we call home, you know, this idea that we're just passing through on our way to heaven, um, a place to which God will call us home at some point in the future. This has had a profound impact on our engagement in environmental issues. Uh, the church uh, has to carry some of the blame for the way in which we are destroying our environment because they've uh, justified it 
in the West in particular, uh, through a particular kind of theological interpretation that says this earth doesn't matter anyway because we're all getting off this ship. And then you also see the impact uh, on the approach of Christians to issues of social justice as well, although there's some efforts to kind of remedy perhaps both of these, the, the sort of the elephant in the room is that this big idea of hell is still sitting there in, in the corner and no matter how much you start to talk a little bit about, oh, no, we should care about the planet too or we should care about, you know, helping people out too, ultimately if this comes down to an end game of who gets to escape hell and get into heaven out there in the future somewhere, well, then surely that sets the priorities very clearly. If hell is an eternal destination of endless agony and torture, well, then of course, stuff everything else. The aim is to just get as many people converted to Christianity as possible, as quickly as possible, right? But if we then think about Christian faith as escaping hell in, in this kind of way, then what about children who pass away, who die at a young age, you know, tragically, before they've had a chance to convert to Christianity? Well, then what a lot of people say is, well, well, they can't go to hell because they're too young to be responsible for their actions. So they get to go to heaven. So, you know, little babies and things get to go to heaven. Uh, some church traditions develop an age of accountability you know, after which you are now responsible. But if we draw the uh, kind of conclusion to this, and I did this with my, I asked uh, one of my theology classes this a while ago. I said, okay, what's the, what's the natural implication? What is the way, if that's true, what's the way to get the most people to heaven as possible? And ultimately, the most effective way to get the most people to heaven is for us all to be killed at a young age before we become old enough to become responsible for our choices, right? Because <laughs> if there's, if uh, if we if we die as as a baby, then or as a little kid, then it's then it's all good. We get to go to heaven. And we don't get old enough to ever run the risk of rejecting Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Saviour. And so we can't go to hell when we die. So that sounds good, except, you know, killing all the children doesn't sound like a very good idea, does it? So there's some real inconsistencies to me in this whole way of seeing things. And perhaps I'm overgeneralizing. But I'm also pushing the implications of some of these ideas to their logical endpoint. Uh, and these logical endpoints are often things we'd rather avoid. Now, I want to say at this point that this is a touchy subject for a lot of Christian people. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm um, in any way kind of mocking or berating people for holding this particular point of view, given that I held it for much of my uh, life, certainly my earlier life. And for many people, the whole point of their Christian faith, the whole point of Christianity, the whole point of Jesus, around which they have centered their life, is to save us from going to hell when we die. So we might add some bonuses and benefits on top of that for this life here and now, but ultimately that's the bottom line. So to question any of that is to question everything. And that can be unnerving and unsettling. And I think this is why so many Christians react kind of so viscerally, you know, when somebody questions their belief in hell. So, if, uh, you know, sometimes when we talk about this in particular groups that I that I coordinate or that I lecture or that I teach, when, when confronted with any of these questions, people are like, but then if there was no hell like that, then what even would be the point of Christianity? Uh, and so... If this conversation is already making you feel a bit uncomfortable, I, I totally get that. And I know that feeling, and I've had that feeling before too. And my hope is that you're able to sit with it, you're able to acknowledge it, and you'll come along and see where the conversation takes us. So, 
To unpack this a little bit, I want to do a bit of a dive into some biblical texts. Um, Now, if you're not as familiar with this or you aren't from the Christian tradition at all, I hope that you'll still find some useful and interesting insight into the conversation and into some of what I think is going on. Uh, Partly because these ideas of heaven and hell are not just conversations happening within the church, actually, but they found their way into the popular imagination as well. And so there are ideas that are thought about and conceptualized and wrestled with and considered in various forms by many people, uh, the explicitly religious and the not-so-religious. So, let's give it a crack. Let's start uh, with some of the the, uh, the texts of ancient Israel, what we call the Old Testament. And when we look at this Old Testament, uh, which is about the first two-thirds of a Christian Bible, we find it actually has very little to say about life after death. There is a lot of ambiguity. Uh, there's a lot of vagueness. Uh, the most common language is, or the way of describing what happens when somebody dies in the Old Testament is that we descend into Sheol. So Sheol is an old Hebrew word uh, that's sometimes translated as the grave, or perhaps best translated, although it often doesn't appear like this in any of your biblical texts, as the shadowy abode of the dead, which kind of refers to this fact that we've got we've got the grave uh, and there's this idea of descent, but, um, but there's something kind of slightly ambiguous or vague about it. So this shadowy abode of the dead, maybe there's something going on there, maybe there's not, uh, but certainly we don't know anything about it. Uh, Now, some ancient Near Eastern nations around ancient Israel have quite well-developed concepts of some kind of underworld, some kind of shield, some kind of shadowy abode of the dead, Uh, some kind of mythology that made sense of that, had quite uh, uh, well-considered stories uh, about what happened when you descended into Sheol. But ancient Israel leaves things pretty vague about what that even means. There's certainly no clear idea that we're consciously cruising off to this physical place uh, called, you know, heaven or even to Sheol to hang out or to do something. It's very ambiguous, unknown language. Now, there is some hope expressed over time among some of the poets and the prophets in the Old Testament. And this hope is that perhaps Sheol, the grave, the shadowy abode of the dead, is not the end. That somehow perhaps God Uh, their God, Yahweh. And if you go back to episode six, you'll hear a little bit about how we talked about ancient understandings of God. Um, But the hope that developed was that maybe somehow God will overcome Sheol and rescue us from the grave at some point, or rescue them, I should say. But still none of that really has to do with going to a place called heaven or hell somewhere one day in the future. Uh, Now, there are references to this idea of heaven as the domain where the divine is present. But again, there's no sense of that particularly being a place that we go to when we die, or even really being a physical place somewhere far, far away. Sometimes there was these ideas of heaven being up there above us somewhere. Uh, There's this very old story in the book of Genesis where uh, one of the main characters there, Jacob, falls into a dream and he sees a ladder with these angels ascending and descending in and out of heaven. Very mystical, kind of weird, trippy dream. Um, but there's this ladder with angels ascending and descending in and out of heaven. And so in one sense, you could say, well, that shows that heaven is above us. But what it seems to indicate in many senses is that the ideas of heaven and earth in the ancient imagine of Israel are, are less re- related to this idea of two physical places that are a long way from one another, but kind of a, a matter of seeing, a matter of 
Or what reality are you seeing? And then the sacred spaces and the sacred rituals for the Hebrew people that developed as a part of their cult of religion became places where, for them, heaven and earth would meet. In other words, where the domain where the divine was present would meet with those who were in some way present uh, in a very earthy manner. And so the temple became one of the places where heaven and earth were seen to meet. And even later, the actual Torah, the law, was seen to be one of these places of the meeting of heaven and earth. So, um, I hope you're tracking so far. Now, when ancient Israel is defeated, destroyed by this empire called Babylon, uh, you may or may not be familiar with the story, but what happens is Jerusalem is destroyed, the ancient city, uh, the temple is burned, and the people go into exile. Many of them are taken off to Babylon under this king called Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, many others are scattered around other parts of the world. But they begin to talk about a hoped-for deliverer of some kind of way. So they develop these expectations about the coming of the Messiah who's to come and rescue them. And this is the framing narrative, really, for the way they thought about the idea of uh, salvation. It was never really in their minds to hold an idea of disappearing off to, to some faraway ethereal city in the clouds when we die, or even about avoiding burning in an eternal fire. Salvation was about being rescued from oppression. Now, I think these ideas are really important for us to grasp when it comes to reading the New Testament, because if we approach various passages in the New Testament with this preconceived notion of heaven as a golden city in the sky that we'll all be flying up to, or hell as a raging fire deep down as a dark place where all the heathens go, then we impose upon the passages of Scripture we read meaning to these terms that perhaps have been have come later in the tradition uh, rather than reading them in the way that they might have been heard or understood in their time. So, for example, when someone comes to Jesus in the New Testament and they ask a question like, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when I was growing up, well, the question they're asking is, how do I go to heaven when I die? Um, but if you actually immerse yourself in a first century Jewish way of seeing the world, that's probably not the question that they're asking. And you see this often in the response of Jesus, where he might offer them some particular, usually a question or a story or an insight, uh, and he'll, he'll begin that with, if you want to enter life or do this and you will live. So eternal life in this context is actually about a state of being in the world, not about some location that comes upon us or that we are flung to in the future. So the idea of early Christianity is not that People's spirits float off to be with God up in the clouds. The Christian story is much more earthy and physical and gritty. And the language Jesus uses to describe this is to talk about entering or participating in or experiencing the kingdom of heaven or elsewhere, the kingdom of God. And in many respects, you know, that's all sorts of things we could say about that. But at least a big part of what it means is to live in a way that rejects domination and violence and oppression and manipulation and power over others uh, and fear of the other and that and instead is interested in seeing things turned upside down and so for Jesus uh, all of the status markers are flipped on their head uh, it's the child who's embraced and honored it's the slave it's the marginalized it's the oppressed it's the poor who are drawn in valued and embraced it's the woman for Jesus, this is God's way of being in the world. The language he gives to that is the kingdom of heaven. 
So, at the, But at the same time as this challenge to see and live in the kingdom of heaven is unfolding, the language of hell also begins to be used, or at least what gets translated into English in our Bibles as hell. Uh, and I want to suggest it's often used in a way that's largely in contrast to this notion of the kingdom of heaven. And I think that's helpful to think about, this idea of this contrast between the two. Uh, not as this future location necessarily, we're not really talking about that yet, um, but as this existential reality, the state of being in the world here and now, language that is used to describe what life is like when the presence and the way of self-giving love in the world is not seen, not known, not experienced. This is the this is the language of hell, if you like. When we see violence and hatred and envy and abuse and oppression and all of those things, we are seeing the outworking of, we might say the manifestation of, or the experience of hell. The contrast to the kingdom of heaven unfolding in people's lives. So to unpack that a little more, what I want to do with the remaining time really is just look at the two main words that are used uh, in the New Testament, in particular by Jesus, that are translated into the word hell in our English Bibles and see if this kind of all matches up. So the first of these is the word Hades. So this is so remembering that the Old Testament is largely written in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. Uh, because that's the language they're speaking and writing in by the first century. And so now the word used is Hades. And Hades is really, in many senses, the Greek equivalent of Sheol, which is that old Hebrew word we were talking about before. This word that's the shadowy abode of the dead. Now, by the first century, we're some years later now from the Old Testament narrative. And this idea of Hades is also used as a symbol in some respects for a kingdom or sometimes as a personification of the forces of death at work in the world. And this is the term used when Jesus says, for example, that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now the word he uses here that's translated as hell is Hades. And the idea, I think, is that not even the strongest forces of death uh, can resist a community that is grounded in self-giving love and the rejection of dehumanization. And again, death here is being used as this image of the forces of violence and oppression and manipulation and dehumanization in the world. Uh, now, one of the authors of New Testament texts, uh, his name is Paul, he uses similar language, although we should note that at no point in any of Paul's letters, which are the earliest Christian texts that we have, does Paul use the word, any word that's translated as hell. But in a letter to a church that is in a city called Coloss, he talks about the experience of God uh, as being rescued from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God. Again, it's, it's this very religious language, but it, you know, it's a particular kind of imagery, but it's these two contrasting kingdoms or these two contrasting ways of being in the world. Do you want to participate in the kingdom of God, of this way of being that's centered around self-giving love, or do you want to participate in the domain of darkness? Uh, <laughs> which might sound intense, but ultimately is intense, huh? Uh, because it's about uh, people who are committed to destructive and dehumanizing ways of being in the world. Uh, so this is this is one of the ways that Hades is really used in the first century. This um, this kind of contrast, this this kingdom, this personification of the forces of death that are at work in the world. Uh, now, sometimes Hades is also used to refer to underworld or post-death reality of some kind, similar to the idea of Sheol. 
Uh, and there are various developing mythologies surrounding it in different Jewish streams at the time in the first century. And one of the other writers of the New Testament, John, uh, he writes the last book that's in a Christian Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, and right towards the end here, this Hades, this Sheol, if you like, this shadowy abode of the dead, is thrown into uh, the fire and is destroyed. Right, so that's one word, Hades, and the way that it's used. The second word, and this is the one that's much more commonly used by Jesus, this is, the, in fact, the word he almost always uses, is the word Gehenna. Uh, and again, translated as hell in English. Now, Gehenna is the name of the Valley of Hinnom. So it's a physical place outside of Jerusalem, over the city wall in one particular area. And apparently was the place of child sacrifice to the ancient god Molech, and also some, uh, some human sacrifice to Baal as well, I believe. So um, there's this physical location outside of Jerusalem where people in the past had sacrificed their children to this god, uh, Molech. Now, in the Old Testament, Molech is known as the most detestable of all gods, largely because of this practice, uh, because of this the statue of Molech that they would heat up to, to a burning temperature, and then you'd have to place your child in the arms of this statue and stand there impassively, as impassively as possible, while your child dies. It's a horrendous, horrendous practice. And the Valley of Hinnom was the place where this was practiced when it was practiced in Israel when they followed this god. Uh, when they were being unfaithful to their own God. There's also some, some suggestion that by the first century, this is a place of tombs, so it's the place where dead are put. Um, it's this place of child sacrifice. Some suggestion that it was also a place where all the rubbish and filth were burned, where animal and human corpses were left. So as a physical location outside of Jerusalem, it's a pretty, it's a pretty toxic, uh, potent image, right? And Gehenna starts to be used by some first century Jewish rabbis as a symbol. Uh, well, it's actually used in a couple of different ways, depending on the stream that you're in of Judaism in the first century. So some use it as a symbol for, for where the wicked might be sent for some period of purification. Now, they're not literally saying you're going to be put in that valley, but they're using it as the symbol for where people might be sent who need to be purified or even perhaps destroyed, as some rabbis taught. But Jesus appears to use it in a particular kind of way, and he really does use it, uh, I would suggest, in the tradition of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet that protests against those who sacrifice their children in Gehenna. He protests about many things that ancient Israel was doing at this particular time. One of the things they were doing was sacrificing their children to Molech in the valley of Hinnom in Gehenna. And they're also participating in all sorts of other oppressive and violent practices. And he and Jeremiah says, if you continue in this kind of way, you're going to end up in Gehenna yourselves. That's where all of this leads. That's what happens when you follow the way of Molech. And ultimately, that is what happens. Jerusalem is destroyed and burned. And so Jeremiah is using the symbol of Gehenna to refer to the coming destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of these foreign armies and empires. The message of Jeremiah is if you live by the ways of violence and oppression of the weak, the result is more violence and more death and ultimately violence that you will experience. Um, and this Gehenna term, as I mentioned, is the one Jesus uses most often. And he uses it very similarly at times, most of the time, in fact, to the way Jeremiah uses the term. 
And so largely what he's referring to is that if you do not change your course of action, you are, he, he says he keeps warning them against the kind of activity that they are engaging with, that they're being ruled over by this particular empire. But he's saying if you're going to take up violence, you are going to suffer violence. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus actually records that the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, you know, bodies of many of the Jewish people were cast out of, so this is after Jesus now, uh, were, were cast out of the city into the Valley of Hinnom, into Gehenna. And so it stands as the symbol of the self-destructive consequences, the destructive wake of dehumanizing behavior here and now. When you engage in taking up arms, when you engage in violence, when you engage in fear and all of those tactics that come with that, then ultimately what is created is destructive, dehumanizing violence that turns back on yourself. So this is one of the, I would argue, one of the major ways in which Jesus uses the word Gehenna, which is translated as hell in our English Bibles. Uh, he uses this language sometimes in, in, in creative ways. And so at one point, he talks about the religious leaders as sons of Gehenna, sons of hell, but actually sons of Gehenna. And again, this invokes the idea of these two contrast, contrasting kingdoms. What he's saying is you religious leaders in the way that you are, uh, you are oppressing those who are now downtrodden, those who are being pushed to the margins all the time, you are laying weights on them that they're unable to bear, and you are stirring up violent re- the possibility of violent revolution. You are sons of Gehenna. Um, are you participating in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus seems to ask, or are you cre- creating conditions of hell on earth for people? Now, the implication of all of this for me is that if we want to ask the question about whether or not God wants people to burn in Gehenna, well, the answer is no. Now, there is a God who wants people to burn in Gehenna in the ancient world, and that God is Molech. It's one of, this God, one of these gods believed by in peoples in the ancient Near East, the one who wanted human sacrifice to be performed in Gehenna. And so I think it's reasonable to say now... <laughs> that a belief in some kind of eternal, fiery burning for other human beings is more in line with following Molech than any notion of God that is shaped by Jesus. So, Hades and Gehenna. This is the predominant biblical language for hell. Almost every time the word hell is used in the New Testament, these are the words that are being used. Most often it's Gehenna. And the invitation, or we might even say the challenge, is to consider how we want to live in the world. One of the big questions that I think a meaningful Christian faith poses to the human race is do we want to live in such a way that we see the transformation of ourselves and one another in healthy, liberating and freeing ways? That we act in ways to bring liberation and peace and even love of those who are different, of those who are even considered our enemies? Or... Do we want to participate in a way of being in the world that causes pain and violence and manipulation and oppression? And so this is the choice in the Christian text between the kingdom of heaven and the domain of Gehenna, of hell. And although this kind of language is filled with all sorts of ancient religious imagery, I think it's still a very real and meaningful challenge to the kinds of lives all of us want to live here and now in the present. It's religious imagery, but it's a very human challenge. How do we want to live in the world? 
Now, having said all of that, which is a lot to say, perhaps, uh, and it might raise all sorts of questions for you, but one question it does still leave us with is, well, then what about life after death? What does the Bible have to say about that, and then what do we do with it? Well, as it turns out, the Bible does suggest some things about life after death, although I would argue that it doesn't use the word hell ever to describe it. So in the next episode, uh, I want to think about how the Christian tradition has talked about this idea of life after death and eternal destination. And if we're honest, and I would like to be honest, uh, any kind of chat about what happens after we die is in the realm of complete speculation. Uh, So we'll talk about whether there's anything useful at all to be gained from this kind of conversation. Um, But I think there are some real implications we need to consider around the different beliefs that Christians have held about this and continue to hold uh, and what might be some helpful ways of moving forward in this discussion. So that's where we're heading. Uh, In the meantime, if this brings up questions or prompts particular thoughts, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, I know that was a lot. We just went through a lot and you might be like, that was a lot and I hear you and I'd love to hear from you. So if you've got some questions, some things you're considering or that, that come up for you as you're listening to this, you can contact me, of course, by going to intheshift.com and clicking on contact. Or as always, you can find In The Shift on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, and all of that jazz. So we'll continue this conversation next time on In The Shift.